All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 14. Being bitten. Going to cover a, a pretty good chunk of Luke 14 this evening, cover the whole chapter in two weeks. Be speeding up a little bit throughout this section as uh, the portions, uh, the accounts are a little bit longer in detail. Two weeks ago, we were reminded of the necessity of vigilant humility unto genuine compassion. In this time together, we consider just how important it is that we don't see ourselves as better than others and particularly better than sinners. Simply because we've been graciously redeemed from the bondage of our own sin and its eternal consequences. This evening, we take kind of a deeper dive, if we could, into the mindset of humility. Understanding not just how it is to be realized in our lives, but the deeper roots of why it is to be realized in our lives. And we are continuing to see if we can call it this kind of a leapfrog, a flip-flop of topics. And we're going to continue to see that as next week there's going to be this uh, salvation idea or... Um, uh, discipleship idea, devotion idea, and we're seeing these themes continue to kind of go back and forth throughout Luke. We now understand that we're, we're not better than anyone else on a fundamental level because all we have been given to us has been given to us by a loving God. We understand that sinners need us to love them. And to have compassion upon them, not to judge them or reject them. It's a mindset of humility which is rooted in our understanding of grace on, uh, uh, the grace of God, excuse me, on our behalf. That were it not for the Lord, we would be no different. But there, there are other t- themes surrounding humility which Jesus is going to explore. Themes which might be familiar to us in some ways, but which we're going to walk through this evening. And, and in some ways in our application, we're going to take a step back and see many broad themes. Not just on humility, but broad, the, some of the broader principled themes. So, many of which we've been contending with and working with and learning about throughout Luke. And, and again, we're going to see them in just such a clear way this evening. We step into our text in verse 1. Reading verses 1 and 2, the Bible tells us this in Luke 14. And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. Our text begins with a familiar scenario. We've seen this time and again by now, right? Jesus going into a scenario or into a situation where he is going to be near and around Pharisees and Sadducees. And there's going to be a discussion, uh, perhaps contention between them. Jesus is now eating in the house of one of these Pharisees on the Sabbath day. To this point, most of the Sabbath controversies have taken place in the synagogues. They have not necessarily taken place regularly in individual homes. We have seen uh, some uh, controversy in homes. We think of Simon the Pharisee with the woman who came and anointed Jesus' feet as Jesus was eating at Simon's home and such. So, so we've had some, but this one on the Sabbath, we have a Sabbath controversy in the house of the chief of the Pharisees. He's invited over, which is somewhat of a surprise. Uh, at this point, that's a good thing that uh, the chief of the Pharisees was willing to have Jesus into his home uh, to host him as a teacher, uh, as a rabbi, and 
So that's a good thing. That's a, that's a positive step. Uh, it was perfectly allowable under Sabbath law to go over to someone's house and eat bread on the Sabbath day. So there's nothing untoward about that. But notice at the end of verse 1, the text says that as they came together on the Sabbath day, they watched him. They watched him. The Sabbaths of Jesus, it would seem, had become somewhat infamous at this point. What's he going to do today? Kind of a situation. How can we accuse him today? What, what's going to be the issue today? Uh, we know that there's going to be something because it's Jesus on a Sabbath day and we're looking for something to accuse him of. So he's under the microscope. What can we do today? Uh, every Sabbath where he was in the public, we might imagine, all eyes were trained on him to see what trouble he was going to cause on that day. And verse 2 tells us that there, a man came... Uh, before him with the dropsy. Now, the dropsy was a medical condition that was defined by the retaining of excessive amounts of fluid in the body. It's it's something that uh, was regarded in the in the 1800s. It was called this. Uh, we've typically broken it up into different names today, depending on where the body is retaining fluid. Uh, so, if you were to look in an older dictionary as a medical term, they would talk about peripheral edema, which is the accumulation of fluid in the appendages. Uh, they would talk about ascites, which was a dropsy of the abdomen, accumulation of fluids in the abdomen area. Um, we could talk about pulmonary edema, which is the lungs. We could talk about uh, paraorbital or, or, orbital edema, which is the eyes. Or we could talk about hydrocephalus, which is the, the skull, the head. These are all different things that were lauded under the concept of the dropsy. And that word dropsy being from the Greek meaning that you see there, hudorpikos, hudor being the Greek word water there. So it's a retaining of water. This man had some accumulation of fluids in his body and he was suffering from it. Now the account is going to take a very familiar turn. I could probably ask any of you to fill in the gap of what's going to happen next and you would be right. Verses 3 through 6. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go and answered them saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out? On the Sabbath day, and they could not answer him again these things. Luke 13, Jesus healed a woman of a spinal issue on the Sabbath day, and he asked the people, which of you will not take your ass or your ox to be watered on the Sabbath day, right? That was his question in Luke 13. How many of you will not care for an ox or an ass on the Sabbath day and bless that, that creature of God on the day that is the blessing of the Lord? In Luke 14, he asks a similar question. Which of you, when his ass or ox falls into a pit, will not pull him out on the Sabbath day? This kind of ups the ante a little bit, right? It's not just that I'm going to do the work of walking my ox or ass to the water to water them. But I will actually, on the Sabbath day, do significant labor to save the life of an animal, right? It's not just walking and back and forth and, 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 and doing the, the menial tasks of the day that would need to be done. Uh, this is a, a much more labor-intensive task of gathering together people and of figuring out how it is we're going to pull this ox or this ass out of a ditch on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says, who wouldn't do that, though? 
The idea is the same. On the day of God's blessing upon his people, can we not bless others? On a day of blessing of God's people, can we not preserve the life of an animal which God has given to us? It's the same concept, right? Uh, Jesus is saying the same thing. So the Bible tells us that Jesus heals the man and sends him on his way even before he did this. We've considered this argument, but Jesus uses this circumstance as a launching point for important lessons. Now, Jesus is going to get into a couple of parables. And remember, when we talk about parables, there's one point. There's one lesson. We're looking for that one lesson. And oftentimes, the context of the the situation at hand is going to help us really understand where the lesson lies. So we begin in verse 7. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden. When he marked how they chose out the chief rooms. Alright, so here's our context. Saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. That when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shall thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So Jesus uses this this parable to call uh, his listeners unto a perspective. He's healed them. There's been that controversy. But then he starts looking and he sees how they arrange themselves in the room of the chief Pharisee. And he uses it to, to give a parable. The verse 7 tells us that he speaks speaks this parable to those who were bidden, right? Those who were invited there that day. And verse 7 also tells us that Jesus, having watched them and how they positioned themselves, felt he needed to say something. And he observed that they were each jockeying for the best position in the room. Each man was seeking to exalt himself above the other men in the room. Each man was attempting to claim the position of highest honor and the position of greatest privilege in the room. Now, the concept of an honored position uh, in in a uh, banquet setting is not necessarily as popular today as it once was, but it's still something that we can relate to. Uh, A couple of months ago, I went to a wedding. And at this wedding, I believe it was the first wedding I have been involved in as a uh, groomsman where they actually had that kind of the head table and the groomsman and the bridesmaids sit on either side of the head table. But that was the arrangement here. The bride and the groom were in the center at a table and then uh, the groom was on the right side and to his right were all of his groomsmen, his best man, and then each successive groomsman. Uh, and then on the left side was the bride, the maid of honor, and then all of the bridesmaids. And as we consider that arrangement, uh, following that arrangement, you would have some tables in the front and there were the parents of the bride and the groom and the family of the bride and the groom and then the guests would fan out from there and and they were assigned a table and whatnot. In that arrangement, there is honor that is given to certain people. Positions of honor to those who were uh, there to assist the bride and groom on that day. Positions of honor to those uh, who had raised them, to those who were their siblings, to those who were their good friends. Honored guests were, were, were seated in particular places. Now, this is not a statement of me being better than anyone else in the room, right? This is not a statement of me being superior to anyone else in the room as much as it's a statement of honor. That whether you're better or not, I am elevating you to a position of honor on this day. I have asked you to do this, and now I'm elevating you to this, and so I'm placing you in this position of honor. 
This was the idea of the men securing the honored seats. So in other words, they were not given assigned seats, but the men were working their way trying to get into those honored positions. It would be as if at a wedding, there were only a certain number of seats next to the bride and groom. They weren't necessarily assigned. And so men were kind of people kind of jockeying to get into those seats to, to be seen as a person that was close to the bride and groom, to be seen as a person of honor. Now recall two weeks ago, We considered the teaching that we are by nature no better than others, and we did so specifically within the context of sinners, right? The the question that had been posed to Jesus at the beginning of Luke 13 was uh, that there were some men that had died, some Galileans that had died when Pilate mixed the blood with the sacrifices, right? What was their sin? And Jesus said, do you really think that you're better than them because they died? Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And then he said, or consider you the 18 that died at the tower when the Tower of Siloam fell. Do you really think that you are better than them because they died and you didn't? And so there's some great sinners. No, he said, that's not how it works. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So we saw them comparing themselves to those who were um, less fortunate. What we would call, maybe we'd say sinners and claiming themselves to be better. But what about your mindset among those who are, if I may say it this way for lack of better word, equals, your moral equals, that if everyone in the room is in general moral standing, I can't necessarily point to you or you and find a natural moral edge with which to hypocritically judge myself against you, right? So you're not dying, uh... You're, you're not in, in, in a place where I can say, see, God is blessing me above you. Uh, you're clearly a sinner and I'm not because of your difficult circumstances. So when all, all things being generally equal circumstantially, how can I judge myself better than you? There's got to be a way, right? And that's what they were doing here. These men were all effectively in the same place, the same general standing, yet they were still trying to find that way of retaining honor unto themselves. Retaining, uh, contending for spots of honor, authority, and position. So that if I can't claim superiority to you morally, I can at least claim superiority to you by position. Right? And of this, Jesus warns. So Jesus describes a scenario where one of their listeners is invited to a wedding. And I love this. Because Jesus is, um, for all intents and purposes, always quite a direct teacher, right? He's pretty straightforward, he's pretty direct, he doesn't pull punches. And yet, in this particular instance, he distances the parallel slightly from the circumstance at hand, doesn't he? It's almost going to be a, a, a one-to-one scenario. When you're bidden to something, don't try to take the highest seat. But instead of saying, look, you people that are here right now, place yourself lower. He says, if you're bidden to a wedding... He distances it a little bit from them, just slightly, probably because these are very proud men. And when you're dealing with very proud people, you've got to have a little bit of tact. Lest they get so offended that they just shut you down before you can teach them the point. Right? And that's their flaw. It's not the teacher's flaw. But a good teacher knows how to appeal even to those that are have a propensity not to want to listen. Right? A good parent knows how, if they've got a proud and a stubborn child, knows how not to rile up their child's pride 
while teaching them a point. Because they know that if they do that, if they hit their child on a point and if they're not careful, then their child's going to shut down. And yes, it's the child's fault, right? It's the child that's doing wrong, but a good teacher will help that child through that by not riling up their pride or not riling up their temper, right? So Jesus is doing that here. He is not going to rile up their pride. He's going to distance the scenario from this a little bit, but still make it very clear what he's saying here. So he says, a man is bidden to a wedding. And what he says is, when any man bids you to a wedding, don't enter in and immediately sit down in the highest room. Because if a more honorable man than you comes by man's standards, then the host of the feast must approach you with that man and ask you to step down to a lower place in order that that man can have the place of honor. This is something that would be awkward for your host, awkward for you. Your attempt to exalt yourself makes it difficult on everyone. Jesus says, may I propose a different strategy, a different mindset. Rather, assume a posture of humility. Take the lowest position. Invite yourself to the lowest position. And then if anyone at the feast feels it proper, allow them to call you up to a higher position. Then Jesus says, you shall have worship of them that sit with you. Now we need to pause for a moment and understand what Jesus is saying here. The word worship means to ascribe worth unto. When we think of worship, we often think of someone ascribing some, to someone or something the privileges of divine, some divine honor. That when a man or woman worships something or someone, uh, they do so in order to give them favor that is due unto God, unto the divine. The vast majority of times in the Bible, when we see the concept of worship, this is indeed how we see it, so much so that we, we really do take it for granted in the text. When we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 8, quite some time ago, and Jesus answered and said unto him, Jesus speaking to Satan here, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The point is very clear. We know what's being said here. Satan is, attempted to, is attempting to take honor for himself that is due only only to God, right? He was trying to get Jesus to ascribe worth, dignity, honor, and position to Satan, which is reserved exclusively for God. We consider just this morning an account where Nebuchadnezzar was telling everybody in the province in Daniel 3 to worship the golden image. When he was calling them to worship the golden image... He was calling for them to ascribe unto this image of gold, this 90-foot image, worth that was due only to God. Something that was God's by right, ascribing it to something else. And that is indeed worship, false worship. But not all worth is reserved exclusively for God, is it? Stay with me on this. When I was at the wedding, I was given a table at the head of the room... The bride and groom, through their efforts, ascribed in that instance a greater worth to me than to some others in the room. Not necessarily saying that I am worth more in the sense that as a human being or as a, as a Christian or anything of the sort, but rather in this context, in this wedding, this person is more honorable. I am ascribing worth unto him. When we go to the car after the service tonight, if I open the door for anyone... It will be for my wife. I will ascribe extra worth unto her 
by opening the door for her to the car. In that instance, I am giving her a greater worth than, say, my children. Not because I see her as more of a a greater person per se, but she is worthy of my greater honor as my wife. These are not wrong things. These are acts of ascribing worth, but they don't threaten God's worth. I'm not taking some worth that is due only to God and imposing it upon someone else. Rather, I am giving worth to someone in a proper manner. That is the idea here. When Jesus tells them in this parable, then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. He's not saying that men are going to worship you in the manner that is due unto God. Certainly that's not something Jesus would ask for them to do or desire them to do. Jesus does not want them to worship false gods or to worship people as God. But Jesus says, by taking the lower place, if anybody is going to ascribe worth unto you, at least it won't be yourself. At least it won't be yourself. This is humility. The humble man does not exalt himself. This is the principle. The humble man does not seek to have himself exalted. The humble man also does not pretend to be, to lower himself explicitly so that he can be brought higher. The humble man doesn't demand to be elevated. The humble man places himself low, does not necessarily expect to be brought higher. Unless somebody does. Echoing the words of Solomon in Proverbs 27.2. Let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. This is what Jesus is saying. You know, you can't stop others from praising you. And biblically speaking, you don't necessarily need to. There were times where men stopped other men from revering them. Particularly when, say, Peter, uh, somebody fell at Peter's feet and tried to worship him. And Peter said, don't worship me. I'm just a man. Don't ascribe unto me the worth that is due unto God. Don't do that. I'm just a man. Uh, it would be the same with the angels in Revelation. John tries to fall down at the feet of the angels. Daniel tried to fall down at the feet of an angel. And they would say, don't worship me. I'm a created being, same as you. Worship God. Don't ascribe unto me the worth that is due unto God. But if somebody ascribes unto you the worth, not, not challenging God, not threatening God in any way, But if somebody else would seek to ascribe unto you worth, the Bible does not inherently say you have to reject that. Just don't seek it. Don't expect it. Don't demand it. As believers, we contend with this idea because uh, the, the idea, as we consider this concept of worship, by definition, it is a form of worship for somebody to honor you As long as the praise, the worth being given to you does not rightly belong to another and specifically does not belong to God, though, the Bible says this is not necessarily wrong. Now, ultimately, everything is of the Lord, right? James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above. Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul says in this verse that God's grace gave him everything that he has. And because he sees the grace of God in his life, he is going to labor more abundantly to be worthy of that grace. But even that labor he can't do without the grace of God. So he says everything is God's anyway. Everything is is of the Lord. 
Certainly each of us must navigate this issue. I have to navigate this issue when somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, Pastor, uh, you did a good job. That was a good sermon. I appreciated that. Lots of study, whatever it might be. Uh, there's a part of you that wants to say, Hey, thank you, because I did work hard on that. There's another part that wants to deflect that praise unto the Lord. Both of which are understandable motives. So we have to navigate this minefield, if you will, to where we as believers recognize that everything that we have is of the Lord. It's, it's, it's the goodness of the Lord. And yet to understand as well that it is not intrinsically wrong to have another man praise you if he is not taking from, me, from God that which is right. And if it is not something that you have been fishing for, seeking out in your pride. Being honored for your efforts and for your accomplishments is not a bad thing. And parents, it's not a bad thing to honor your children for their accomplishments, to tell them they've done a good job. This is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to feel appreciated. It's not a bad thing to show appreciation to others, to thank them, to appreciate them, to honor them. Accepting honor for your efforts and accomplishments within those reasonable limits of not taking that which is due to another or not usurping that which is due to God is okay. And this is what Jesus speaks of when he tells them that they shall have worship. Not that they should want to steal the glory and worth reserved for God alone, but that if they are going to be counted as worthy, it should be in the minds and actions of others, not just in their own. And that's the point here. Stop thinking of yourself as something special. Stop thinking of yourself as something worthy. Stop the mindset where you are constantly trying to elevate yourself in your own eyes and in the eyes of others. Place yourself in a a place where you understand you should be, which is low. And then if others find worth in you, that's fine. Let them. Praise the Lord for that. That's an encouragement. To nail down this uh, this point, Jesus quotes what is one of the abiding themes of the Bible, that the man who exalts himself will be abased, reduced, brought to a low state, and the man who humbles himself will be exalted. Let it sear itself into your minds, God, godly people. Let this truth sear itself onto your heart, that those that exalt themselves shall be abased, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let this become the essence of how you View life and how you live life. James 4 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. May this become one of the prevailing elements of how we live our lives. So Jesus has spoken to them who were bidden. In verse 12, Jesus turns his attention away from those who were bidden to the man who did the bidding. We read in verses 12 through 14. Then said he also to him that bade him. When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again and and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Jesus now gives a responsibility not just to the guests of the feast, but also to the host of the feast. He says, when you make a dinner, don't just call all the ones who you know well, all the ones who are really wealthy, all the ones who are your good friends, those who can recompense you for your efforts. In other words, um, my my wife and I have some people that we invite over on a semi-regular basis, and typically how we do it is this. 
they invited us over last time, so I think it's our turn this time, right? So then you call them and you say, hey, uh, you had us over last time. We'd like to have you over this time. And you have them over and you have a nice meal. And then you would expect that in the next three to six months, somewhere around there, uh, then they, they might call you and say, hey, you had us over last time. It's our turn to have you over. And, the, and, and it kind of goes that way. And that's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing at all. But Jesus is teaching a humility lesson here. Jesus is teaching a lesson about God's design, about how things work, about, remember, it started out with a Sabbath day controversy. It started out with this idea of, of don't be high and lofty about this day. It's okay to pull your ox out of the ditch uh, on the Sabbath day. It's okay to heal on the Sabbath day. Uh, we're, we're, we're gaining this perspective on God's design and the way things are. He says, when you make a dinner, rather remember, context being honor and humility, if you truly want honor before God, if you truly want honor, if you truly want praise, bless those who are unable to recompense you. Bless those who are poor and maimed and lame and blind. And by blessing those who can't bless you back, God in his faithfulness and unchanging character and design will bless you in turn. God will take over where they cannot. I don't know if you've ever seen this. My wife and I have seen it time and again. It's fine. You know, if you want to make an exchange of goods and services with somebody, if you want to sell something and if you want to help somebody who can pay you for it or whatever, that's fine. That's exchange. That's commerce. That's life. But that's not, that's not serving others as of, as unto the Lord. That's not giving unto others. Giving, serving, this idea of, of, of godliness and of charity and of piety, uh, what James calls true religion and undefiled before God and the Father, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That kind of lifestyle, that comes to those who give when, when you give to those who simply cannot give back. To those who cannot recompense you again. I notice the context of the blessing which God gives. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. As we've said many times, Jesus is not preaching here that if I give $10 to the poor, God is going to give me $100 back. Jesus is not preaching about the divine money loophole where I can manipulate God into giving me anything and everything I want by giving to those who have needs. Does God take care of those who give to others? Indeed, he does. Have you ever seen where you give a little bit to someone and God gives you back more in return? I'm sure you have. I have. But what Jesus is teaching here is that when you give to those who cannot give back to you, when you are good to those of whom you can expect no recompense in return, the, the, what he can guarantee and what I can guarantee on the authority of the word of God is that you'll be recompensed on the day of the resurrection of the just. Is that, that, is, that, that there's a mark in heaven that's tallied. And on the day when eternal rewards are given, there will be eternal rewards there because of that action. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Again, we have an enduring principle presented to the host, taught by Jesus several times, that when we do good things for expectation of return, our reward is only the return we receive. But when we do Good things for the praise of God in obedience to him, humbly yielding our rights to our possessions for the blessing of those who are less fortunate than ourselves. There's a divine reward to be had. In Matthew 6, Jesus would give the same warning in regard to spiritual exercises. He would say in verse 2 of Matthew 6, 
not to do our alms to be seen of men. For Jesus says, if you do your alms to be seen of men, then you have received your reward right then and there. That the recompense of your alms is that men saw you and they're impressed. So that's it. That's what you get. Verse 5. Jesus warns us not to pray unto God to be seen of men. Because if you pray unto God to be seen of men, then you got your reward right there. That people saw you and said, wow, you're special. Wow, you're something. But if you pray unto God in secret, the God that sees in secret will reward thee openly. And in this context, Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. Matthew 6 verse 16. Be it money, be it fame, be it recognition, be it honor. But rather, he says in Matthew 6, lay up treasure in heaven. To be realized at the resurrection of the just. We hasten on to another parable which speaks again of a supper. And that's why I'm putting all these together and then we'll move on to our application this evening. Teaches yet another lesson. The context of the parable is found in verse 15. The Bible says, And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Okay, so Jesus first spoke to them that were bidden. And he says, When you're bidden, don't jockey for position, but rather take the low position and let another man exalt thee. Then he speaks to the man who bid them and said, When you bid others to come. Be sure that you're not just bidding those who can recompense you, but if you bid those who cannot pay you back, then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then you'll be, you'll be blessed and you'll have recompense at the resurrection of the just. And while we're on this supper thing, Jesus has one more to give. And so a man speaks up and he says, blessed is the man who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. We're still presumably at this Sabbath meal. One of the men sat down and hearing these lessons given by our Lord, he turns, he gives kind of a spiritual context to it. He turns to Jesus and he says this, thing, which is very true, very good. Blessed is he that shall eat uh, bread in the kingdom of God. It's a simple statement, but as the next parable will relate, it's somewhat profound as well. This man seemingly understood how big of a reward it was to enter into the kingdom of God and eat with the Lord there. This is a big deal. This is why once a month our church does communion, right? Because Jesus wants us to be looking forward to the day when we will eat in the kingdom of God. That's what that's about. That's the memorial. That's the, the looking forward to part. That's the part that we do in remembrance of him till he come. Because we're longing for the day when we will receive that blessing of eating together in the kingdom of God. And while this man did seem to get it, Jesus' parable will marvel at just how many people with good intentions and all the right outward appearances really don't have any interest in being at that table in the kingdom of God. Notice the parable with me. Then said he unto him, so this is Jesus speaking unto that man. I don't know if this was kind of a personal conversation, if maybe Jesus sat down with him and, told, and, and spoke with him on a more personal level about this. Obviously Luke knew about it, so he found out about it somehow. Uh, or if this was something that everybody heard or whatever. But he says this, he says, a certain man made a great supper. And bade many and sent his servants at supper time to say unto them that were bidden, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, 
I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to a servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the cities and bring in hither city. Sorry, I, I interpreted it into Minneapolis, St. Paul here for a moment. I think city there, not cities. Uh, and have you noticed that? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm breaking context here for a moment. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not. Even, never mind. Let's just let's just focus. And he says, go and into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded. And yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Jesus gives a parable here about a man who is going to have a great supper. And in preparation for this great supper, he invites many people to come. The idea is that they were given a day and a general time. And this would not have been unusual. So they say, this is going to be the day of my feast. And then, of course, the feast would generally start about evening or whatever the case may be. And so he would say, this is it. And then when the feast was ready, then he would bid them to come. People lived close enough in that day where... You didn't necessarily have to travel to get there. There was It was local, right? So you would then bid them to come. So they were to clear their schedule, be ready on the day of the feast, and then when the host had finally had everything prepared and everything was ready to go, then he would say, okay, servant, go get the people and have them come to the feast. So the host prepares the feast. And he sends out his servants on the day to get the people who had been invited. And verse 18 says, they all with one consent began making excuses. The first, I need to go see my new land acquisition. Please excuse me. The second, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I need to prove them. As if the time you're having the feast is the same time you would prove oxen. Please excuse me. The third, I've married a wife, so I can't come. Please excuse me. Each excuse shows this. That the, the dinner meant very little to them. That's the point here. The land could wait, right? The land's not going anywhere. If you bought the land, it's not like it's just going to disappear. The oxen can wait. They don't need to be proved today. You bought them, which means you probably at least know that they're going to do something, right? And if they don't, them not doing anything tomorrow is no different from them not doing anything today. It can wait. And the guy will probably be married for a little while to his wife. So, you know, that's, that's okay. You got a wife. We'll come anyway, right? Yeah, there's a lot of jokes I could go there, but we don't do that. So it isn't as if these were true and legitimate reasons to avoid the feast. They weren't. That's the point. Each avoided the feast, the feast, not because they couldn't come, and certainly not because they weren't invited, but because there were things in their life which they considered to be more important than this feast. The feast just wasn't important enough to them. It wasn't as important as other things. Do you see where he's going with this? So the servant returns to his master and he tells them these things and the master of the house gets upset. Because he's prepared the food and he's invited these people and these people just don't appreciate it. 
He's done all, he's done everything to prepare the place for them, but they don't want what he has to offer. And this is, this is disheartening to him. So he says, fine, I'm not going to let all of this go to waste. Go out into all of the lanes and the streets of the city and find everyone, the poor, the maimed, the halt, the blind, get everyone and bring them into my feast. So the servant does that. And the servant says, there's still room for more. He says, okay, then go now into the highways and the hedges. Go beyond the city. Don't just go into the streets of the city. Get beyond the city and call everybody into my feast. Everyone that you bid, tell them to come that my house may be filled. And then the parable finishes with this very sorrowful statement. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Take careful remembrance of the context here. The statement that was made on this Sabbath by that one man was, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And the statement was 100% correct. But the parable of Jesus makes it clear here that there's a lot of people that don't want to be at that banquet table. And they won't be missing because they weren't invited. And they won't be missing because they couldn't get there. Because there were simply circumstances that forbade them from coming. They will be missing because having been invited, having been bidden to come, and having the opportunity to do so, there were things that were more important to them than the feast. And so they refused. Men don't make it to heaven not because the Lord of the feast is unwilling. Not because they have not been invited, but because something else is more important to them than the blessing of the kingdom of God. As I mentioned, once a month we take time to observe the Lord's table. And every week in which we do this, we proclaim this very truth, that those who shall break bread with our Lord in the kingdom of God are blessed. And that we long for the day when we will do so with Him. We are associating with that day together as a body of believers. But so many around the world, many knowing the scriptures, seeing the testimony of their creator through creation and conscience, choose instead to forge their own path. And when they do so, what they're really saying is, Lord, will you excuse me? I have to prove my oxen. Will you excuse me? I just bought land and I need to see it. Will you excuse me? I just got married. I have a wife. I can't come to the feast. While eating bread in the kingdom of God sounds nice, it isn't worth the humility and obedience necessary to get there. And this leads us to three applications this evening. Again, I'm going to give several broad applications, one based upon each of the parables. Parable number one, principle number one, consider the principle of humility and exaltation. I'm not going to tell you anything you haven't heard in these, but we're going to bubble these principles up to the top, and I pray that the Holy Spirit can take these words and apply them to your heart as need be. There are two reasons why I, I continue to belabor the points, particularly throughout the book of Luke, this point of humility and exaltation. First, it's my job to teach you the Bible, right? And if the Bible repeats something five times, it stands to reason you should probably hear it from my mouth about five times more than things that the Bible teaches one time, right? And this principle is everywhere in the scripture. And if this principle is everywhere, then it needs to be brought before our eyes regularly. There's a reason why God repeats it so much. Secondly, there's a tremendous precedent for repetition in Bible teaching. 
In Titus chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes this to the elder Titus. He says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. It's my job to affirm some things constantly with you. To affirm them over and over and over again. You know, there are things growing up in my school years that a teacher would say so often that uh, I liken it to when the Israelites got their quail in the desert and it was coming out their, their, all of their orifices because they had so much meat and they, it made, they, they, they didn't want to hear it and they didn't want any more meat. They had had enough meat. Uh, there are things that I have had teachers say or my parents say that they just said so often that you just roll their eyes and say, wow, uh-huh, I've heard that a thousand times before. But do you know what? They're still bouncing around in my head today, aren't they? They absolutely are. Are there things that are still bouncing around in your mind today that in the day of you were rolling your eyes saying, wow, you, I can't believe you just said that again. I hear that all the time, but it's in there, isn't it? So every time somebody says uh, some, I'm done with something, I hear my eighth grade teacher say, steak is done. People are finished. Steak is done. People are finished. I hear it in my head every time someone says they're done. Every single time because it's in there. This is what God wants us to happen. To have happen with us. And these principles. This is what God wants us to do with this principle that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God wants you to think of it every time someone tries to exalt you. God wants you to think of it every time you you, you have the opportunity to step into a position. God wants you to, to think of it every time you're in any position where you have a choice to make. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So let's hit it again. Proverbs 15.33 The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. I often tell you that faith always precedes blessing. Well, may I tell you this as well? Humility always precedes honor with God. Always. Proverbs 18.12 Before honor is humility. Proverbs 29.23 Honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. If you want honor before God, you will take the lesson of Luke chapter 14 verses 1 through 24 and you will make them your life. You will love, you will, you will love God. You will lower yourself. You will let another man praise you and not your own lips. You will give without thought of recompense. You will seek with all your heart the Lord. These are the marks of humility. David said in Psalm 51 verse 17, this is his Psalm of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, uh, uh, yeah, Uriah's wife. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do you want to please the Lord? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. That word contrite meaning bruised. That's what that means. Worn. A heart and a spirit that are, that are just abased. God, all that I have is yours. All that I am is you. I, I, that's the spirit that God will not despise. The humble man is the man that the Lord exalts. Never forget this principle. It will guide you into spiritual success, but also into tremendous joy. The reward, the success and the joy, however, comes at the cost of self and of pride. And if any of us for a moment think that this is an easy thing to accomplish, then we would do well to think again. Self does not like to be put on the back shelf, does it? 
ever. Our flesh will change. Our flesh will adapt as long as it doesn't have to die. It might be willing to take a back seat as long as it can judge others or convince itself of its own moral superiority. But true, genuine humility is something which is very difficult to accomplish. It's divine. It's the mind of Christ. It's difficult not to snap back when someone snaps at you, but that's how the humble react. When they are wrong, they don't wrong back. It's difficult not to justify myself when someone seeks to embarrass me or falsely accuse me, but that's how the humble react. They don't justify themselves. They know who they are and what they are before the Lord. It's difficult not to seek to win or dominate arguments or disagreements, but that's how the humble react. They don't have to win just to prove themselves right. If they know they're right, that's fine. They don't have to win the argument. And while we can put on a show of humility, the question is, is there any substance there for you? Paul warns us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. Let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head, capital H there, they interpret that to be Jesus, from which all the body by joints and bands have nourishment ministered and knit together, increased with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using. And this was Paul reminding them that they are not under the law, that they are not under rituals after the commandments and doctrines of men. Notice he says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Paul warns here against false humility, which I believe is prevalent in Christian circles. And we need to be careful against false humility Where false teachers discipline their flesh, they sound sincere, but they worship angels in the place of God. They have outward markings of one who is devout, but inside they are puffed up and have a fleshly mind. And we may not intrinsically worship angels, and you may not even be a teacher of sorts, but are you one of those who outwardly you have all the shows of humility, but inward you are puffed up in your own mind? Is the only reason you ever defer honoring yourself is so that you can force somebody into a position to honor you? In other words, have you ever known one of those people who, and I apologize, uh, this is perhaps um, not the best, but on the top of my head I can only think of female examples. <laughs> my, my, my apologies for this, but have you, ever had, have you ever been around one of those ladies who purposefully says how bad her meal is so that everyone can compliment her on her meal? Even though she does a great job every time she makes a meal, but she says how bad it is so that others can compliment her. Or have you ever known somebody who looks perfect all the time, but then they always say how bad they look so that they can hear others tell them how good they look? That's a false humility, right? That's, that is fishing for exaltation. It's false. Maybe the ladies can think of many examples. They're just not coming to my mind right now. My apologies. But you know, the warning in Colossians 2, I guess guys can do it too, especially with their looks. The warning in Colossians 2, however, is toward pastors who sound good, look good. Have you ever known a pastor who sounds good and looks good and whatnot, but then when his will is crossed, he becomes a monster? Because you have defied him? Because you have 
not done what he wants or as he wants it. The pastor who is great if you're his friend, but devastating if you're his enemy. That's what Paul is actually warning about in Colossians 2. That's a false teacher. That's a man who is not a humble man, no matter how much he attempts to convince you otherwise. But any believer can play that game outwardly while simultaneously following a fleshly mind and pursuing the doctrines and commandments of men. Paul warns us because these are men and women who are not following Christ. It's not to say they're not believers, but they're not humble. We need to be humble, folks. So where are we in this point, this first point this evening? Are you truly a humble person before the Lord? Are you the person who is truly willing to take the lower seat and then stay there? So in other words, if you get brought up, that's great. But are you going to be resentful if nobody brings you up from the lowest seat? What if you take the lowest seat and the other people at the, at the party say, Hey, the guy that should be up here is down here. That means I can take his spot and we can all get bummed up a little bit because he's down there. Are you going to go home seething? If so, that's still a pride problem, isn't it? But if you leave there saying, I took the lowest seat and I kept the lowest seat, and you know what? That's okay. Because I don't deserve any better than that. Before God, we're all just wretches. That's okay. That's humility. Are you going, are you the person who says, well, I, I invited them over and now I'm expect, I haven't not gotten my invitation to their house yet. Or are you the kind that says, well, you know what, I did invite them over. And yes, I did invest a nice time, uh, some meal and some effort and whatnot into them. And that's okay. Because I wasn't looking for something in return. That's humility. That's the point. Search your own heart on this. How are you doing? Are you truly humble? The principle of humility and exaltation. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Point number two. Consider the principle of recompense and reward. This gets more, no, this gets deeper and more specifically into that second parable. Given to the host of the feast, Jesus encourages him to give without expectation of return. In fact, Jesus encouraged him to bless those not just without expectation of return, but to actually go out of his way to find those who could not physically return, recompense, right? Specifically give to those who had absolutely no possible way of giving back so that there's no conflict of interest at all. We've said before, you can fool anyone and everyone on this earth with, re- with regard to your motives, but you can't fool God. Why do you do what you do? Is life just a constant series of transactions and barters for your own personal benefit? Have you become really good at Christianizing your transactions and barters so that everything looks like you being kind or gracious, but it more or less is just you bartering for things? Can you not be found in any instance where you will not receive something in return? Are those things which you do even for God driven by a mentality of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours? We've really got to submit ourselves to the inspection of the Holy Spirit on these issues, don't we? Because if you think you have the clarity and self-illumination to assess your own level of humility or all of your own motives without the Holy Spirit's enlightenment, then I can confidently tell you that you are not where God wants you to be because you're wrong. Anyone who thinks they can assess this stuff on their own has a pride problem. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, right? They're called blind spots because you can't see them. If they were, if you could see them, then they, they aren't blind spots, right? Which means you need someone else telling you about them 
and you need to have the humility to be willing to listen to someone when they say, hey, you've got someone in your blind spot. And you say, no, I don't. I can't see them. That's right, because they're in your blind spot, right? That's, that's why it's called a blind spot. It's the same in our lives. Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you've got a problem. Mom or dad comes up to you and says, hey, you've got a pride problem. You've got an anger problem. You've got a fill in the blank. Husband or wife comes up. Pastor comes up. Someone comes to pastor. Says, pastor, there's a problem. You've got a problem. I don't think you see it. Is it in my blind spot? Do I really? Well, the Holy Spirit can illuminate those things if we're willing to see them. God rewards those who don't reward themselves. Whether we speak of vengeance, Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Whether we speak of prayers and alms, we consider it already in Matthew 6. Whether we speak of forgiveness, Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive men their trespass, yet your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Whether we speak of judgment, Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, for with what, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. With which measure ye meet, it shall be meted unto you again. Or even as we have considered over the past three weeks, our response to persecution and wrongdoing in, in our Sunday mornings in Ecclesiastes. In each case, we are called to yield our rights and have no ulterior motive in doing so. And commit our actions, our thoughts, our responses, our commands, our expectations to the Lord. And every time we yield what we perceive to be our right to God's command, we can know this, that God sees it, that he's keeping count, and that we will receive recompense at the resurrection of the just. And every time, likewise, we seek our own benefit. Every time we do something with a hidden or not so hidden ulterior motive for own personal benefit and gain in this life, here's what you can know. You've received your reward already. It's a principle of the scripture. And we need to understand it. We need to embrace it. We need to allow it to be a part of how we operate. Third and final point. Consider the principle of seeking and finding. In Jesus' final parable about the master who invited many to his dinner, but they gave excuses and wouldn't come, so he invited anyone and everyone else who would, so that whosoever was willing, no matter their state, could take part in the great feast. We see the parallels to the kingdom of God. The feast that we will sit and eat, the marriage supper of the Lamb. A feast freely made, Open to all. Some have received a more formal invitation than others. Young people in this church today who are second, third, fourth generation Christians, you've uh, received, you know better the contents of Christ's invitation than many. You've not just received the invitation, but you can tell, you can, you can, you know the font it's in. You know, you know everything about that invitation. You know where, where, where all the, the little decals are on it. Everything, because you've, you've been well acquainted with this invitation. But having the invitation, knowing the one who sent the invitation, is no replacement for accepting the invitation and coming to the feast, is it? And as we learned last week, There are many who believe that because they have recognized their invitation, they think that they're in. Right? There are many who say, well, I know I've been invited, so I must be in. 
others who believe that because they know the God who invites them to come in, they're in. Some really like the God who invites them to come. And so they think that because they really like the God that invites them to come, they're in. Some misread the invitation and end up on the other side of town. But the only ones who will be blessed with the privilege of eating in the kingdom of God are those who come to the feast. Those who accept the invitation on God's terms. The parable makes it clear. Those who aren't around the throne of heaven one day, those will be there because, not because they weren't invited. Not because they couldn't get there, but because they saw something or someone more important than the kingdom of God and they chose that instead. But the principle, again found throughout the Bible, is beautifully summed up in Jeremiah 29, 13. God says, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye search for me with all your heart. When a man is finally ready to seek the Lord, God will be found of him. Now, we say this first with the gospel. I'm not going to reiterate the gospel this evening in this group. We've talked about it recently several times, so I'm not going to reiterate it. But as a believer, I'm I'm speaking to you as well. Why aren't you what you might want to be for the Lord? Do you know I spent years, my, my, my teenage years in particular, wanting to be something for the Lord but not being it because I was really unwilling to yield that which I needed to yield in order to get what I wanted in God. I wanted it. I wanted to serve the Lord. I wanted to take that next step. I wanted to get to the next level. But there were weights, as Hebrews 12 calls them, which so easily beset us that I wasn't willing to cast off. So, why aren't you where you might want to be with God? Why are you still struggling with that sin? Why are you still in a place of spiritual immaturity? Why haven't things gotten better emotionally or spiritually for you? It's not because God does not want to give you victory. It's not because God has not made provision for your victory. Those of you that come on Tuesday nights, we're back in Second Peter studying it verse by verse. We've learned that, haven't we? It's not that God has not made provision. Oh, he's made the provision. It's there. It was there the day Christ died. All the provision was made for victory, for, for, for delight, for joy, for peace, for, for holiness. The question is, what's more important to you than God? Well, fill in the blank. So your pride, your desire for something out of this life, the love for the things of this world. God, I want to serve you, but... And what what's after the but? Finances, reputation, friends, time. What is it that's standing in the way of you and God? You and victory. God is there, unchanging, waiting as he ever is, ready to pour out the windows of heaven, waiting to be found. But are you ready to seek? It's a humility issue. Three principles. Consider the principle of humility and exaltation. Consider the principle of recompense and reward. Consider the principle of seeking and finding. Jesus was bidden to a meal where he gave three parables about others being bidden to meals. First to those who were bidden. Second to the man who was bidding. Third about a nondescript feast. Do you find yourself in any of these parables this evening? If so, can you do as Peter exhorts you to do in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6? 
Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Are you willing to yield what you have today in order that you may receive recompense at the resurrection of the just? Let's allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts again this evening on this very important topic of humility. And let's pray together.